Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. Well, boy, wasn't the worship great? Man, just being in God's presence like that is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I, I came to Christ in 1971 um, out of a lot of guilt and shame and failure, a lot of, a lot of drug usage and stuff like that. And, and I, I didn't realize it until I actually encountered the Holy Spirit that what I was looking for in LSD and, and stuff like that was really an encounter with God. And, and yet when I, when I got saved, uh, I, I, you know, I, my life changed. I just changed very radically, very quickly. I have one friend that tried to talk me out of it. He said, Van, he said, everything you do is extreme. He said, you always do extreme stuff, so now you're just doing this extreme Jesus thing. And, but he said, you always move from thing to thing, so I know you're going to be back pretty soon. You'll, you'll, you'll do this thing with Jesus for a while, and then you'll come back. And um, it's been like 50 years now since I accepted Christ, 51. And so I've stuck with the radical side. I've stuck with the radical commitment to Jesus. And it was easy for me to understand that commitment to Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, is by nature a radical thing. By nature, it has to be a radical thing because a disciple follows their discipler and models their life after their discipler. And, and I like what John Mark Comer says, if, if you know who he is, he's a pastor from the West Coast. He likes to use the term apprentice, because in our culture today, apprentice probably describes more accurately what a disciple was in that day. So anyone who is an apprentice of Jesus has to realize that there's, there's a radical commitment in that, and that a radical commitment is normal. Uh, in uh, the early days of, our, uh, of my Christian walk, I read a book by a guy named Watchman Nee, and it was called The Normal Christian Life. And, you know, we, we tend to think of the Christian life in segments like that. There's, they're like people who say they're Christians, but you really don't see any fruit in their lives. And then there are the normal Christians who you know are saved because they read the Bible, they come to church, they probably give some, they serve some. And, and their lives are, you know, kind of normal. And then you have the radical Christians, you know, the extreme Christians, that, you know, the ones that, um, uh, well, I, the story I was reminded of this morning, <clears throat> one time in my hometown, just a small town of a thousand people, a motorcycle gang drove through town. And as they were go- going through and out of the town, a friend of mine ran out into the middle of the street and he shook his fist and he said, and stay out of town. Uh, should I explain that to you? That was a joke, okay? <laughs> but at any rate, um, you think of a radical Christian as someone that goes up to like a motorcycle gang and, and tells them you all need Jesus Christ or, or, or goes into some forbidden territory. But the simple truth is real radical Christianity is simply following Jesus. And when Watchman Nee wrote that book, The Normal Christian Life, what he said in it was that being a radical disciple of Jesus is normal. That's the normal thing. And when I came to Christ, I was discipled by a pastor who encouraged me to memorize Scripture 
and to read books about missionaries. And these books, uh, the first book he gave me had like eight different stories in it of missionaries. Back in the day when if, if you sailed out of a port in Europe to India, you knew there was a good chance you were never going to make it home. And so I read all these stories of missionaries who went into these wild places, and it told me two things. One was that we have a mission, and that mission is really truly worth our lives. And that it set a standard in my thinking for a commitment to Christ being something that really is truly radical. I didn't really understand it at that time. I just kind of like had this this very high-level idea of being a radical Christian, which really can end up being counterproductive in your life, and I think was counterproductive in my life, because I always kind of like sensed, until I reached that level, you know, I haven't really made it. I haven't really done anything. But what I've come to understand about radical Christianity and being a radical disciple is that it is not a destination, It's not like I get there and now I am really a radical Christian because I did these radical, crazy things for Jesus. It really is a pathway that we walk on. It's just a pathway that we walk on one step at a time. And the way you get on that pathway is to give Jesus your yes, kind of like your pre-yes. Ahead of time, you say, Jesus, whatever you ask me to do, I will do. And so the pathway of radical Christianity is very simple. It is, what's God saying, and what am I going to do about it? Just those two questions. And it's, what's God saying in His Word? And what am I going to do about it? What has the Holy Spirit highlighted to me from the Word of God and shown me a place in my life that I need to conform that to His Word? And am I willing to say yes to that and to walk in that? And so radical Christianity is simply every day having a heart that says, yes, I will do whatever you say. I, I will, I'm giving my, my yes beforehand, and whatever you ask of me, the answer is yes, I will do it. I'll walk with you. That's what radical Christianity is. Now, anyone who actually does something that would appear to be a significantly radical thing, they, they've, it doesn't just come out of the blue. It comes as a result of walking down that path of yes to God. Yes, 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 yes. And then something is asked of you by the Lord that appears to be radical, but it's really just the next step. You know, at one point in our lives, Lori and I moved. We resigned the church we were pastoring and moved because we had a shift of theology, which I'll share with you a little bit about later. And with four children, we moved to a new city without any job and uh, without any promise of a job, without a place to live. We packed everything up and drove to that city and put everything in storage. And I look at that now and I think, man, that was crazy to do that. But we had made a number of smaller decisions in the year previous to that. And we had said yes to a dozen smaller steps so that when it came time for us to say yes to the idea of moving from Michigan to Champaign, Illinois, to learn about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, it was just simply the next step. And it didn't seem like a giant step. Does that make sense? 
And, and so, I believe the Lord calls us to a mindset of radical life. And it all boils down to what is God saying to me and what am I going to do about it? Now, my, part of my wife's story really relates to this. So I wanted Lori to come up and take a few minutes to share with you. So come on up, honey. Let's welcome my beautiful bride. Here's the microphone. I wanted to share with you uh, when I, I grew up going to church, but I, when I went off to college, um, I just didn't have any, anything to do with it. Um, I just um, found my social life in the sorority life, and so I didn't, didn't need the social church that I had been brought up in. So when I um, came to um, be in a relationship that was not good for me, but it turned, I went into um, being engaged and then feeling like this is not right. I am not living the, the kind of life that I'm, I have peace about. And I broke the relationship. Um, and I one night I just went on my knees and said, God, send somebody to me. I need to understand why I'm here. What's this all about? And I know I really do need you. And um, sure enough, he sent someone to my room and my, um, my roommate actually went and got me. She knew I was, I might be interested. I don't know why she did, because I never, I'm introvert. I don't share my, my heart um, easily. But um, I was invited by Mary Lou to just um, read the Bible. And I went, yeah, I'd like to do that. And I, even though I'd read the Bible, I didn't understand it. And so having someone that would just kind of walk me through and share what, from her life what the Bible meant was huge. So one, one day she took me to a meeting. Um, it was in Stone Mountain, Georgia, somebody's basement. And um, I heard this uh, verse that challenged me because I always listened. I was sat down to listen to Billy Graham every time he was on TV. So I knew the gospel. But this verse kind of radically changed my view of what it meant to walk with Jesus. And it's Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And I knew enough from Scripture, just studying with Mary Lou, that these were significant words. And so I had questions. And when I asked the speaker some questions, which I can't believe I went up to him and asked him a question, he said, Lori, I have a question for you. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? And I went, yeah, no problem. Um, do you believe that he died for you? I went, yeah, I really do. And he said, well, have you trusted him? And I said, no. And um, I hope that doesn't offend you. <laughs> Stupid thing to say. But he looked at me and he said, well, Lori, with these steel blue eyes that look directly into mine, it's not me you're rejecting. And at that point, I went, oh, I've been on the fence. 
I need to really go all in with Jesus. And when I did that, even though I had um, found peace and security where I was looking for it in the wrong place, I was still kind of seeing my ex. And we were thinking about traveling through Europe together. It's kind of crazy, you know, what you're thinking when you're 21 years old. But um, I, I had the opportunity to travel with my sister. And, um, and so I had this choice to make. And I talked to Mary Lou, and I said, I'm just not sure what I should do. And she said, well, let's pray. Let's, let's talk, and let's pray about this. And afterwards, she said, well, have you heard from God? What is he saying to do? And um, I said, yeah, I think he's telling me not to go with, with my ex. And, and um, she said, well, Lori, you must do what he has told you. And that is what I needed to hear. I must do what Jesus is saying to me. And so that's my encouragement to you is you consider your life just walking with Jesus day by day. What is he saying to me? What is he asking me to do? And I must do that. That's a place of joy and peace. So thank you for listening. Uh, we were talking, and Eben said that he and Sarah, are gonna, you're going to celebrate your 20th anniversary soon. Is that right? And, and I said, I think it was about 20 years into marriage that we actually started to get along. We get along great, but uh, um, just think if Lori hadn't obeyed the Lord in that. Just think of how her life would have been different and, and how hard it was because she was engaged to the guy. She must have at least liked him. How hard it was to say no to that. But even when the hard things come, we need to understand there's a verse in the Bible that says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And repentance is when God speaks to me, shows me something in my heart and mind that I'm believing that is wrong, and I begin the process of replacing that wrong belief with His truth so that it changes the way I live. And it's God's kindness that leads us to actually change the things that my parents taught me that maybe aren't quite right. And I realize that fully that I've, I taught my kids things that they need to repent of because, you know, as we've grown through the years, we see things differently than we did when they were little. But it's God's goodness and His kindness that enables me to repent because who wants to repent to somebody that's harsh and critical and condemning? I want to stay away from people like that. But I, but I want to get to God because He is good and loving and kind. And when He says, don't do this, don't go to Europe with your former fiancé, he's not, he's not withholding something. He's providing a blessing. He, he's, showing you the way, he's showing the way to live, to walk in blessing. And so when we can really begin to get that down in our thinking that God is good, He is kind, He loves us, and His commands are not harsh or heavy, His, His commands in Scripture are intended to show us the way to live that He created us to live so that we can walk in blessing. 
so that we don't end up putting diesel in a gas engine because we feel like it, or who, who, why, who, who should have the right to tell me I can't put diesel in my gas engine? Yet a lot of us make decisions about life that way, and, and some people would have responded by saying, well, who can tell me I shouldn't travel with my former fiancé through Europe? But really all God was saying was, this is not going to be good for you. This is going to mess your life up. Don't do it. And so if we can all begin to understand that, then it makes it so much easier to take steps of obedience to Him, even when we don't understand why, or even when maybe our emotions are drawing us a different direction. And so Jesus said this to us in, uh, in John 20. He said, even as I have been sent, so I send you. And when He said that, He was giving us an outline for our lives and for how we are to respond to the Word of God, to the call of God, to the mission of God on our lives, because He was sent in a specific way. He he was sent into a broken world, and we are also sent into a broken world. And He was sent with wisdom from God and power to bring healing to that broken world, ultimately he establishes the full basis of healing by dying on the cross and being resurrected from the dead. But in his ministry, everywhere he went, he brought healing to people. And it's very easy for us to look at that and to think, well, of course he did. He was the son of God. You know, of course he could heal people. He was God's son. He was deity. And you expect that God could actually heal people, don't you? I mean, that makes sense. But the truth is, when you look at Scripture, the Bible teaches that Jesus did not minister out of His own personal role as deity. He set that aside. He didn't, he didn't set His deity aside. He remained God, but He set aside, as, as we put it, the independent prerogatives of the use of His deity. And he said, okay, Father, I'm becoming a human being. I'm going to live as a human being. And just like any other human being, I'm only going to do what you tell me to do. I'm only going to do what I see you doing. He said that in John 5, 19. And by the way, that's one of the foundational verses for the Vineyard Movement, where Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. And so, well, where did he get his power then? Well, we are sent in the same way he was sent. And he was sent in the power of the Holy Spirit. In John 4, 17 to 19, it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he, then he says, and, and I'm called to you know, preach, uh, to bring healing to the blind and, and the sick and preach freedom to the captives. But in Acts 10, 38, there's a verse that more clearly states this than any other. Acts 10, 38, it says, it's in retrospect in Peter, giving a message, is talking about Jesus. And he said this, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And so he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and the power that comes with the Holy Spirit. And you, we read in uh, the Gospel of Luke and Mark, Matthew, 
that when Jesus came back from the desert, he came back from his time of trial, being tested by Satan in the desert, he came back in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's distinctly stated in a way that would indicate that he came back with something that he didn't have before he left. And so, yes, he's the Trinity, he's part of the Trinity, and how can we possibly conceive of him being separated from the Holy Spirit? And we can't, but as a human being, as, and he was fully human and fully God at the same time. He wasn't human mixed with God or God mixed with humanity. He was both at the same time, and so in, in his humanity knowing that He was going to call us to follow Him, He enables us to follow Him because He walked in the power of the Spirit, which is what you and I are called to do also. And so, we have the same access to the same, uh, same power that Jesus actually walked in. And you see Him exercising that uh, throughout the Gospels. Time a scribe comes to him, it says, I'll follow you anywhere. And for Jesus, that would have been a real coup to have a scribe follow him, because the scribes generally were strongly opposed to the ministry of Jesus and were mostly always presented as his enemies. But here's a scribe that says, I'm going to follow you. That would be today like someone who is a radical human, humanist atheist who says, I want to know Jesus. And today, most pastors, if, if Evan and I had that happen, would probably, and Sarah, would, Lori would probably right away say, man, we've got to get that guy on stage. You know, we've got we to get him to say the prayer and then get a book written about him so other people can see, and, and, and we're going to be pretty proud of this, too, that we got this guy on our team. But what Jesus says to him, and he said this because he looked into the guy's heart, and he said, the birds of the air have nests, and the foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, he could have done it a different way. He could have just welcomed that guy into the fold. And we don't know what, the guy, what choice he actually made, but Jesus knew in this guy's heart what the guy actually needed to know about following him. He needed to know this is not going to be easy. He needed to know it's not going to be the lifestyle you're used to. He needed to know that. And how did Jesus know he needed to know that? Because Jesus was a prophet. Moses said, God's going to raise up a prophet for you like me, like Moses. And as you read that description of this prophet, it, it was speaking of the Messiah, Jesus. And so Jesus did operate in prophetic gifting. And part of prophetic gifting, uh, in, in the broad sense, prophetic gifting includes anything that's revelatory. It includes what we call words of knowledge, which would be knowing something about someone that you couldn't know in any natural way. Words of wisdom would be God speaking into a situation at the moment with an answer that you wouldn't have come up with on your own. And then there's discernment of spirits, you know, what spirits at work here, what's happening in this. There are also just actual, in a more specific way, there are actual prophetic words where people get messages 
that, uh, that, that God wants to give to them at the moment. And when we get those, and they're true, sometimes they're, sometimes they're off, sometimes they're just right on target. When they are true and right, then we hold on to them. Because Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.18, he said, Timothy, fight the good fight. And he said, fight it by the use of the prophetic words which were spoken over you. He said, that's your weapon, one of your weapons. Of course, the, the Bible itself is a prophetic word to us, and it's a power, it's a, it releases the power of God in us. But that specific prophetic word that Timothy had received Paul said to him, use that when you get discouraged. Remember the word you got. Remember when I laid hands on you and I prophesied to you how God was going to use you and don't quit. You know, keep on going. So there are specific prophetic words that can be given. But we see Jesus over and over again, the woman at the well. He has this encounter with the woman at the well and he says, well, go get your husband. And he knew already that she... She didn't, she wasn't married at that moment in time. He knew that because the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. And you see, he knew what the Pharisees were thinking on different occasions because the Holy Spirit gave him understanding to see what was in their hearts. And so Jesus himself operated under the power of the Holy Spirit and in prophetic type giftings. And then he says, just like I was sent, and Jesus was sent in the power of the Spirit and with the opportunity to operate in these prophetic-type giftings. And he says, just as I was sent, I am sending you. And in that John 20 passage, John 20, 21, next thing he does is he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And so this whole thing of prophetic ministry is... Um, is one of the, the, the key ways that the power of God is released. And in the church body, but outside the church body as well. And, and it's, it's so powerful that in 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul said this. And I assume that many of you, or if not all of you, already know these things, but it doesn't hurt to hear them again. Here, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, pursue love. And he's just read, we just read the chapter on, the, on love, and what love is and the love of God is. And he says, pursue love. And so go after it. And the word pursue there is a word that can be translated as persecute it, meaning you, you just stay on it. You keep after it. When, when someone's persecuting, being persecuted, there's someone or something that is, that is after them right behind them, making life difficult. But here he's saying just pursue it ardently, pursue love. But then he says this, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, all of the gifts. And then, then he speci specifies this, but especially that you may prophesy, especially that you may prophesy. And we ask, well, why is that? Why is prophetic gifting held up? as something that the whole church should pursue, and it's simply because prophetic gifting releases the power of God. In verse 24, he's talking in the context here as he says, if, if, if an ungifted person or um, a stranger comes in 
and you're all praying in tongues, he's going to think you're all crazy. But he says if you have a prophetic, if all are, if all are prophesying, then that person, it says here, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Now, when he, when he says, if all prophesy, he, he doesn't mean that everyone constantly is just all they, we ever do is give each other prophetic words. What he's talking about is having a prophetic type culture where the church body, by and large, people know how to discern when they're, having, when they're receiving words of knowledge or words of wisdom or discernment of spirits or, or an actual prophetic word. It's just that that's part of the atmosphere in, in the church body. And when that happens, he says... Um, the new person that enters senses something. And the word convicted sounds very negative in our culture today, but really it, it means convinced. He's convinced by all that, that there's something better, that God is good, that I, that I should turn to Him. He's convinced the secrets of His heart are, are revealed, you know, perhaps through a prophetic word. We, we've seen this happen where I'm thinking of one young lady that, that was in our house, in our basement, with a, a house group there, and she was simply prayed for by someone, and all they did was pray for her what God put in their heart to pray for her. They never gave her an actual prophetic word. They just prayed for her what God revealed to them to pray for her, and it was so accurate that it changed her life, that she, that she came in an atheist, at least she claimed she was, but this prayer by another young woman was so accurate to the specifics of her life that, that she, she accepted Christ, and her life was changed. It's, it's that type of culture, not where everyone is constantly prophesying, but where we as a church body are growing into that, just a step at a time, in, into the, the radical nature of really believing that God does speak to us today, and that that God speaking to us releases His power into our lives and can release His power through us into the lives of others and through others into our lives. And so it's a powerful, powerful gifting that we want to really honor and respect. Now, the first time I encountered a prophetic culture, um, sometimes, well, there's a verse that says this in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, do not despise prophetic utterances, and, and don't quench the Holy Spirit. Now, a good friend of mine told me that the reason it says that is that there's something that can be despicable about prophecy. And when you think it, it's a very powerful gift. And so, it has been misused. It has been abused. It's been used to try to control other people, which it never should be used that way. And so, we have to be careful that we don't actually despise prophecy. Now, I myself, for many years uh, after Lori and I met and got married, we, I went to seminary. And the seminary I went to taught me that prophecy and all the other gifts of healing and um, discernment of spirits, speaking in tongues, and interpretation of tongues, that those gifts had all died, that they were gone, they were no longer alive. 
And so for the first 15 years of my ministry, that's what I taught from 1975 to 1994. And in 1993, a friend challenged me on that. Didn't challenge me specifically on whether the gifts were alive, but he gave me a challenge that led me into a pursuit of the Holy Spirit because he said I didn't teach enough on the Holy Spirit. And so I started reading about the Holy Spirit, and as the more I read, the more I studied, the more convinced I became that the gifts of the Spirit were not gone, that God does still speak to people today, that there are still prophetic words today, and that if that's the case, then I need to find out what that means. And so my wife and I had set out on a journey to actually discover what that meant, one of the first things we did was to go to a place, a, a church that was a vineyard at the time in Kansas City. And it was a conference, so the pastor stood up and he said, you know, there are 2,000 crazy people here from all across the country. This is not like a normal church service, so it wouldn't be like something you would you'll really look for to happen on a Sunday morning. But it was more than I'd ever experienced. And what would happen was the speaker would stand up to speak, and the place would go into such an uproar that of people cheering and yelling and, and jumping up and down and that the speaker couldn't speak. He was just drowned out by the 2,000 people that were there. And this, this happened two or three times. Um, one guy went up and stood there for five minutes by the, by the podium, and then he fell down on the floor and rolled off the stage. And it was a high stage. It was a stage like five, six feet high. And then I looked at one whole section of the room, and if, you, if you've ever seen like a flock of birds flying, and they all just turn at the same instant, one whole section, it would be as if this whole section, except it's hundreds of people, they all fell to the left at the same time, and they all just fell out of their chairs on the floor. And then some guy ran around the outer part of the auditorium yelling at the top of his lungs, woo-hoo, 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 and he's pumping his knees. And at that point, I thought to myself, this is insane. We got to get out of here. And I literally thought, this is everything John MacArthur warned us about. And I'm, and I'm sitting there calculating how much money are we going to lose. Uh, we'll you know, turn in the rental car, cancel the hotel, get new plane tickets to fly home. And I'm calculating all of that. And my eyes fell on a, a, per, a man, probably about six foot two, six three, and he had long hair down to his shoulders, and he had a tambourine with streamers on it, and he was beating that tambourine and dancing in circles. And where I come from, men don't do that. You get beat up if you do. <laughs> and it was like, I'm watching this, I'm thinking, look at that guy making a show out of himself, and I am despising what he's doing. And then the Lord spoke to me, and God, just as clear as a bell, what's on his face? And my answer was, joy. And then, what's in his heart? And my answer was, I don't know. Then that happened with two other people 
that were in the midst of all this craziness, they were somehow standing out. Uh, and after the third one, when the Lord said, what's in her heart? And I said, I don't know. Then the Lord spoke to me and said, that's right, and you don't need to know because I know. And then this, you've been willing to tolerate quiet flesh for a lot of years trying to get close to me. And that was true. I, even though I didn't believe in the gifts of the Spirit, I would fast and pray because I wanted a more intimate relationship with God. And if you were in my church, I, I pictured people mumbling into hymn books. And that's what would happen, or people would just just get a hymn book right about right here and mumble, and not, they're not worshiping, they're just mumbling, but they weren't causing any fuss, and so I tolerated that. He said, you've been willing to tolerate quiet flesh for a lot of years, trying to get close to me. And then he said this, you're going to have to tolerate some noisy flesh now to get close to me. And it was so profound that I went in those probably 30 to 60 seconds that that took place from wanting to get out of there to my response being, if that's the way it is, then count me in. And I got up and walked down front and I met Happy Layman. And Happy and I talked and I asked him for a job and he said, no, where you're coming from, you, you wouldn't understand this. But he said, you can move to Champaign, which is what Lori and I ended up doing just a, like three weeks later, we packed up everything we owned to move to Champaign. But my, my point of sharing this with you is that I need to have an open heart. And when God says, pursue prophetic gifting, I can't sit back and say, oh, I'm afraid of that. Well, I can, but I, I don't want to. I, I, don't, I don't want to, I mean, I don't want, like our church culture, very similar to yours on a Sunday morning, we have children up front dancing and, and worshiping and, and people dance in the back. But we had crazy stuff happen. We've had crazy stuff happen, like, People run. We had a runner, a couple of runners. And I mean, what? If you want to run, the parking lot's right there, you know? And, be, and running at top speed, and we just, you can't do that. So I'm not saying that we just allow everything like I experienced that night just to go like, like crazy, but I do want to be in a place where there are people there that hear from God. And where if, if I'm hurting, I know I can go to someone, I can have them pray for me with insight and sensing what's the Holy Spirit doing, what's He saying, how's He want to move, how's He want to work. And I believe every one of us are called into that kind of, uh, kind of radical commitment to the Lord and, and, walking, and, and walking with Him in that. So He says, pursue it. And that, just, that starts with just having a, an open heart. An open heart that says, God, whatever you say, I want. Just make it clear, I'll do it. And, and he doesn't always start off by saying, well, okay, you know, um, run up on the front of the stage at this place and 
preach the gospel to all these people that came here tonight to hear this, to watch this movie, or, or it's, not, not, it's not radical stuff like that. It's just simple steps of daily obedience that produce a lifestyle of power and that, that really fill, the, fill uh, the bill of what Jesus said when He said, if anyone will come after me, he has to pick up his own cross and follow me. NIV says he has to carry his own cross, but that's a bad translation. Carry means someone else put the cross on me. Pick up, it means it's, it's me. I'm going to say, okay, I am going to obey you right now even though I know there's a cost to it. I'm going to obey you right now even though I know that it might bring some negative stuff back my direction. I'm going to obey you. I'm picking up my cross. I choose to obey. And when we do that, and we're yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit, and we're taking advantage of opportunities to learn more about how the Holy Spirit works in us and through us, we're really entering into the most exciting life we can ever experience, ever have. Type of life where you see people freed from demonic issues in their life. Type of life where you see people healed. That one song that we sang where it talked about the bones, these bones will sing. About five years ago, we had a lady in our church that had a golf ball size, was it a kidney stone? Some, I think it was a kidney stone. And she's singing that, and she said, well, God is God over the bones in my body, and this kidney stone is like a, 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 a um, random piece of bone in my body, and He can heal it. And it disappeared. And she had the x-rays to prove it. And, and the doctor reports to prove it. You get to see stuff like that. It doesn't happen every time, but, it, but God wants His kingdom to break in. And so we approach it with the expectation something's going to happen. You know, when we invite Him, something's going to happen. And, and it's this whole idea of prophetic type stuff that, uh, that really just kind of opens the atmosphere up. And, and it, just, it just frees us to experience more of what God has for us in the whole realm of doing the things Jesus did and walking out this call that we are sent just like He was sent.